The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, the first married and died childless, then the second and the third married her, and so on in all the cases, seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, The children of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die any more, because they are like angels and are sons and daughters of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. The Gospel of the Lord. As we wind down our liturgical year, our readings today focus on the last things, and particularly eternal life. And that's a great relief for all of us, because the characters in the first reading certainly rely on that truth, and Jesus in the Gospel flatly asserts it. In fact, he argues with the Sadducees on this very point. And Jesus is God. Now, the Sadducees are a very elite class. Most of them priests. They look after the temple in Jerusalem. But they only held to the five books of Moses from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And they said, when we look in those scriptures, we find nothing about eternal life. Therefore, we believe that when a person dies, that's it, annihilation. Well, in the parallel accounts of this story in the other Gospels, Jesus says to the Sadducees, you know neither the power of God nor the Scriptures. And then he goes to the very Scriptures that they hold to be inspired, in this case the book of Exodus, and he says, look at what God said from the burning bush. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, those patriarchs died centuries before, which means there was not annihilation when they died, but they are alive. Jesus is now arguing from the very scriptures of the Sadducees, but he also says you don't know the power of God because the Sadducees thought if there is such a resurrection, it's just like a return to the life we live now, where there will be marriage and eating and drinking and so on. Jesus says, no, life in heaven is totally different. The power of God will raise us up with glorified bodies. We will be like angels, not that we will actually be angels, but like angels in the sense that we are eternal and will not suffer nor die. 
which means there's no need for marriage in heaven. The highest goal of marriage, of course, is procreation. There's no need for that because no one dies. And then as far as the other end of marriage, which is love, that is now subsumed in God. Now everyone will be in a state of love that far surpasses marriage. So he uses that in his argument with the Sadducees. Practically speaking, what does that mean for us today? Just to hear the logic of Jesus, the power of God, both in the Old Testament and the New, and of course, the example given to us in the first reading with the seven sons and the mother. First of all, since there is resurrection and life eternal, that means every wrong, all wrongs committed against the innocent will be set right. Those who suffered evil will be vindicated. And secondly, we who help them, the vulnerable, the weak, the poor, will be rewarded. As Jesus says in the Gospels, if you give even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, you will not lose your reward. And if we give generously to the church so that she can carry on her mission of proclaiming the Gospel, it will be given back to us in greater measure. In fact, Jesus says so in Luke chapter 6, where he says, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. He's just there summarizing the Old Testament teaching from the prophets, and in particular, the tithing that the Old Testament really did emphasize. Malachi chapter 3, the prophet says, bring all tithes, now this is God speaking to the prophet, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessings that there will not be room enough to receive it. Now that's the only verse in the entire Bible where God says, test me in this. Test me and I will prove what I'm saying. Jesus then, in Matthew chapter 6, says, Don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So that's one of the consequences of us being eternal, knowing that this is not the end, but what we give here and in terms of time and talent and treasure and caring and love and charity will last forever. Finally, we can live courageous lives if we really believe in the resurrection. And that's the first reading. That remarkable story of these seven sons and their mother, the context there was that this was the second century BC this wicked king, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, of Greek origin, wanted to wipe out the Jewish religion altogether and make everything Greek. And so he passed laws forcing, compelling Jews to stop practicing their faith on the pain of torture and death. Well, we have this example in today's first reading of this mother and seven sons absolutely defying the king and they base it on their belief in the resurrection. The first son says to the king, 
We are ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our ancestors. The second son said to the king, You accursed wretch, you dismiss us from this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. The third son says to the king, I got these, and he's talking about his hands and limbs that are being tortured, mangled. I got these from heaven, and because of God's laws, I disdain them, and from God, I hope to get them back again. The fourth says to the king, one cannot but choose to die at the hands of humans and to cherish the hope God gives of being raised by him. But for you, there will be no resurrection to life. Remarkable. And actually, if you read the text in the Bible, because this first reading leaves out the really gory details because the actual text describes some of the torture. Well, let me just leave you with one contemporary example of a person who really did believe in the resurrection, and that changed the way he lived. I had the great privilege and pleasure of viewing a documentary on Formed, which you will have access to on our website, about the life of Jerome Lejeune. Some of you probably know of him. He lived within the last hundred years. He was a great scientist. And he was very, very concerned about children affected by Down syndrome. He had a lot of patience of these children and their parents. He knew the history of how these children were ostracized, marginalized, discriminated against. The derogatory term was Mongolism. He really wanted to find a cure. So he worked diligently, and he actually found the cause. It's an extra chromosome in that affected person. Well, this was such a breakthrough, and he was only 35 when he discovered this. He got many awards, many honors, prestigious positions, world famous, invited to all kinds of events where he was a great speaker. He was excited about the new possibilities for therapy and a cure because if you can isolate that extra chromosome, you can dampen or reduce its effect. And the lifespan of these children have risen from the age of 10 to 60. So it was a great breakthrough. But he also knew that his discovery opened up a new field of investigation for modern genetics, and in particular, the development of prenatal diagnosis of chromosome abnormalities, and therefore, a great increase in abortions. He was a very strong Catholic. He knew about eternal life and the resurrection of the body. So he knew that these children had great dignity, even as embryos even though they had this extra chromosome. But he knew there would be thousands of abortions because of his discovery, and it was, it was a great, great distress to him. So he began to, instead of going to these speaking e events and speaking about the science, he began to defend the protection of these embryos, the right to life. And he was ostracized, criticized by the scientific community. 
They didn't invite him anymore. He lost funding. His life was destroyed in terms of his scientific ability to continue. And in fact, after one of his great speeches in New York, he was on the plane back to France, and he wrote this in his journal, and his talk was about defending the human embryo. Protecting the disinherited, what a reactionary, retrograde, fundamentalist, and inhuman idea. It became clear after my speech on the nature of mankind, the scientific crowd opened up for me, silently letting me pass without a word or handshake as he left the building. I know very well, and I knew in advance, that the scientific world would not forgive such impertinence. To be nonconformist to the point of still believing in Christian morals and to see how fully they coincide with modern genetics, that is too much for these scientists. If chromosomes ever had a chance of earning the Nobel Prize, I knew I just lost it when I gave that warning. And he did. He didn't get the Nobel Prize. He should have. That was the backlash that he received. His daughter later said he decided to take a stand, and he knew that at that moment it would destroy everything that he had built. There's an example, like the first reading, of how knowledge of eternal life really should shape us in our decisions. For those of you who pray the Liturgy of the Hours, the last prayer just before you go to bed is called Compline, and the very last petition of that prayer, and this is prayed by priests, religious, and many lay people, we pray this. May the all-powerful God grant us a restful night and a peaceful death. When we have this mindset that the truth of eternal life shapes everything that we do in terms of our generosity, our courage, our faith, then when we put our head on the pillow at night, that prayer really is effective. We will have a peaceful death because we will know as we've lived our life what awaits us in heaven. And that is the great joy of today's readings. Let us always be shaped by this truth. This life is not the end. Death is not the end. Love conquers all things, and God is love, and he's calling us to this generous and courageous way of life.